Hello, welcome to Lamb Informs Radio. My name is Ian Corey. I am the songwriter in the band Lamb Informs. This episode is the audio version of my three-part series on the Lamb Informs blog titled Who Will Entertain in America? It is a series about live stream entertainment or socially distanced entertainment in the COVID era. The first part is the result of a series of interviews with several of my musician friends or audience members for a variety of live streamed performances. The second piece is a discussion of the NBA bubble following the cancellation of the NBA season due to COVID. And the third and final piece so far is about the metal band Code Orange and how they uh, exemplify the aesthetic shift that has occurred as a result of the lockdown. Thank you for listening. Over the last several months, with all the streaming services, socially distanced sports, books unread, and workout plans to use to kill the new abundance of time that the inessential workers of America now had on their hands, Twitter managed to get flooded with terrible infinite jest takes, not once, but twice. Of course, these arguments aren't ever about the book itself. The book is only a signifier of a composite personality that the poster is trying to position themselves against. But these kinds of phantom conflicts do great numbers, so everyone brings out the old caricatures of their opponents and goes to work like a boxer warming up on the pads. It's a shame, because there's plenty to gain from criticizing the contents of Jest instead of regurgitating jokes about its length. Who knows, maybe the book about the addictive power of entertainment and the difficulty of connecting with other people might have some ideas worth chewing on during a period where we're all locked inside with nothing to do but get drunk and watch TV. So, in an effort to move the discourse beyond book good versus book bad, here's a good faith critique of Infinite Jest. While David Foster Wallace was very astute in his depiction of why we as Americans seek to be constantly entertained and how that desire and its consequences mirrors the cause and consequences of drug addiction, his choice of entertainers, namely experimental filmmakers and tennis prodigies, reveals the limits of his authorial eye. He was so damn good about writing about tennis that his decision to focus on that is forgivable. And filmmaking is crucial to the nerve of the plot, but these are hardly representative samples of who entertains in America. Feel free to use this critique the next time you're stuck on a date with a DFW bro. Tell them the Pynchonites send their regards. I am fascinated by the questions of who we ask to entertain us and what we ask of our entertainers. There's a lot of work to be done to answer those questions, Uh, but for now, I'm going to focus on entertainment in the age of social distancing. I will start in this letter by talking about musicians turning to live streaming during lockdown. Then I will use the tools and concepts developed in this first letter to address the NBA's bubble experiment in letter two. Finally, I will return to the subject of music to talk about Code Orange, the metal band that have placed themselves at the forefront of the live streaming era. Now, without further delay, it's time to get this show on the road.
the last night out I had before all of my nights were in was a live concert, Fucked and Bound and Haunted Horses at St. Vitus in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. The show was great, in part because the air was crackling with nervous energy. There was a feeling that we were all getting in under the wire, last call before a cosmic closing time. Tours were already being canceled, and anyone still on the road at this point was squeezing what little merch sales they could from shrinking audiences. Not great conditions to be living under, so going apeshit to Moshriff seemed about as good a response as any before the curtain fell. But even as the concert industry shuddered to a close, musicians themselves determined that the show would go on. In some high-profile cases, bands like under oath filmed recreations of their live show in empty venues. Others hunkered down in their practice spaces. DJs hosted live stream parties and producers traded old tunes back and forth to compare resumes to the public. The vast majority, however, had no such resources and instead armed with little more than acoustic guitars and a need to receive attention, rushed to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitch to perform for America's new homebound audience. Since my instrument of choice, drums, makes it virtually impossible to put on an entertaining live stream of my own, I've only been able to participate as an observer. So I asked some of my fellow musicians and music fans about their experience on both sides of the live streaming camera. While the limitations of live streaming put up significant barriers for amplified performances, acoustic artists had a much easier time adapting to the new format. John Rosenthal, a former co-worker of mine at Invisible Oranges, told me that he found the new setting better suited to his music. Uh, he said that it feels more intimate while everyone is in their office or living room or bedroom watching me in my office. While John has played live in multiple other projects before, this was his live debut as Footpath, a project that John described as sad bastard folk music. The project style also informed John's choice of streaming platforms. Uh, instead of Twitch, which he associates mostly with memes and gamers, John went with Instagram and Facebook. By contrast, uh, Sadhu Anna Dollingham of Semaphore, a former Lamniforms radio guest, chose Twitch for his live streams because he was familiar with it from watching people play games on the platform. Building off of Semaphore's Halloween cover of the Dillinger Escape Plan's Miss Machine front to back, Sadu streamed live covers of full albums like Doppelganger by The Fall of Troy and Highly Refined Pirates by Minus the Bear on Twitch, as well as Instagram. Part of the excitement of any live show, but especially instrumental exhibitions like this, hinges on the risk of having only one take to get things right. Any live audience knows this, but the mediation of the internet makes it so that artists have to find new ways to recreate that excitement from scratch. I thought it would be more impressive if I played the albums fully and live as opposed to pre-recording the performances, Sadhu told me. Also more fun. The counterbalance to that excitement, however, is the risk of unexpected technical issues. Latency was the biggest thing, and I'm still working on it. Also, getting content ID'd on Instagram during the doppelganger set was annoying, since I thought they'd suspend my account. These technical issues don't just hamper performers, they can also shape the experience of the audience. 
I had to stop watching because it was so laggy. My friend uh, Nicholas Casada said of a Charlie XCX live stream that he paid $5 to view. I'm a Charlie XCX fan and it was streaming from Boiler Room, which has streamed some great stuff in the past, but this just fell flat. Of all the platforms that you'd expect to have their T's crossed and I's dotted when it comes to live streaming, the Boiler Room would have been at the top of the list. The dance music hub has streamed live sets for years with packed crowds and attendance that only raise the potential for human error. Yet the imperfections of this new normal have had a democratizing effect, one where name brands and living room shredders are both going to have to jump the same hurdles. Still, higher production value seems to win out when not impeded by the internet. Joseph Clomes, singer of Droughts and graphic designer, including the design for my record Sisyphean, expressed skepticism about DIY bands being able to pull off live streams at an adequate technical level. A DIY band isn't going to invest, and I'm not going to watch a poorly filmed live set with bad audio, Joseph told me. I think a band the size of Under Oath or Thursday can pull it off because they invest in it. You can see why this would put the future of live streaming in a bad place. Without touring income, the number of bands capable of investing in the equipment necessary to elevate their streamed shows to the quality of their live ones is quickly dwindling. Anyone who falls outside of that shrinking bubble has to offer their viewers something beyond fidelity to keep them hooked. Artists can go the footpaths route and focus on creating a unique intimacy and access to their personal space. Or they can go the semaphore route and aim for feats of musical showmanship, to cite the examples we've covered thus far. But no matter which route artists choose, they'll also have to face the more pressing question of how to make money from live streams. Big names can charge for exclusive access, but the best most other artists can hope for is a digital tip jar and links to their band camp. What a strange reversal of fortune, where the live show is now the loss leader for the record instead of the other way around. However, if making a living off of streaming is off the table, then artists are free to use the platform for other purposes. In Chicago, Varaha filmed performances in empty venues to promote hashtag Save Our Stages, a bill that, is, that now has bipartisan support to help fund independent venues during lockdown. Closer to home, at least my home, Semaphore used their live streams to raise money for the Bail Project. I'm fortunate enough that since music isn't my sole source of income, I can donate all proceeds from the streams to charity, Sadu told me. The Bail Project speaks to me because I think we need to move towards abolishing private prisons, dismantling the prison industrial complex, and towards restructuring the way society deals with those who commit crimes, more economic opportunities and mental health care rather than incarceration. I am all for artists of any size using their art for causes greater than themselves. I've tried to do the same by donating the proceeds of my physical merchandise to the South Brooklyn Mutual Aid. Added bonus, I get to spend money on the UPS for shipping. However, if we're going to think about this critically, it's worth noting the inherent conflict between using platforms like Google, Facebook, and Amazon, who own Twitch, for social activism. When these same companies are responsible for aiding the surveillance state, spreading misinformation, and crushing their workers' attempts to organize at every opportunity, to name only a few sins of the fang. Keep this dissonance between the advocacy of the performer and the interests of the platform in mind 
for part two of this series. Next up, what year is it? NBA The Return. I've had a hard time watching TV the last three years. I've had less time to do it, sure, but I think the problem is more complicated than that. The shows that I have watched ended in disgrace, like Game of Thrones, or felt, no matter how good they were, incomplete, like a crucial piece was missing from their construction. The more I've thought about it, this constant absence might not be the fault of Dark, Watchmen, or Mindhunter, but the reflection of something missing in me. Maybe the part of me that actively desired something from TV has been hollowed out, the nerve endings reaching there singed as if overloaded. Maybe this is because I watched Twin Peaks The Return. Twin Peaks The Return is the third season of David Lynch and Mark Frost's early cult classic Twin Peaks, which was unceremoniously canceled in 1991. I make this distinction in naming because despite the return being set in the same world and populated by the same characters and continuing the same story as the original, it is a profoundly different show. This is by design. Twin Peaks, groundbreaking and great as it was, was constructed out of recognizable television stories, high school melodrama, police procedural, soap opera romance, etc., what made it special was how it bent those tropes to its own purpose, to build a place, in the show's own words, both beautiful and strange. The Return, which aired in 2017, narrows in on the ugly and mundane. Actions that could be conveyed in a single cut, the floor being swept or shovels being spray-painted, instead take up entire scenes the vibrant northwestern aesthetics replaced with the drab interiors of office reception rooms and cheap hotels. Where Twin Peaks was alluring, mysterious, and sensual, the return is dry, brutal, and mean. Its characters wander through the world hobbled by age and lacking a clear direction. You're watching a world where the core has stopped spinning, Whatever you thought you were getting by returning to Twin Peaks will only appear in flashes. The show that has arrived in its place is something else, something that should not be. So you can imagine the dread that washed over me when I fired up ABC for the first televised basketball game in five months and saw hovering over an empty court the words, NBA, The Return. So, in late February and early March, roughly in that area, the NBA began to weigh its options as concerns about the coronavirus spread, some teams electing to play games without fans, for example. When asked about this in an interview, Rudy, the French rejection Gobert, star center of the Utah Jazz, by the way, what a just awful combination of words Utah Jazz has always been speaking of things that should not be. Anyway, Rudy Gobert, 
proceeded to bend over and breathe directly on the microphones placed in front of him. On March 12th, he and other members of the Utah Jazz tested positive for COVID-19 while preparing for a game. The NBA promptly canceled its schedule until further notice, in what felt like the USA's first public reckoning with the year to come. While the owners, commissioner, and players' union deliberated behind the scenes about the future of the season, the NBA killed time with a video game tournament, a socially distanced horse competition, and a month-long hagiography of Michael Jordan. Only one of these will be remembered outside of COVID recaps like this. The league eventually settled on what they would prefer we call a campus, but what the press and players immediately dubbed the bubble. 22 teams, with a reasonable chance of making the playoffs, would all be flown into a single location, quarantined, tested regularly, and would grind out a shortened end to the season before a conventional playoffs. The bubble was a tall ask, but with the players' income hanging in the balance, both sides had reasons to try it. It would require the players to be away from home for at most three months, and rigorously quarantined if they needed to leave for urgent matters. Time in quarantine means time off the court, which could have a direct effect on the player's next contract. If the games failed to happen at all, same thing. Fewer televised games would mean less income for the league, and thus a lower salary cap. The salary cap is the artificial limit placed on how much a team can pay their players in a given season. And so the Players Union and the league settled on Disney World in Orlando, Florida, as the location for the bubble. Full steam ahead into the zone in the middle of summer. But, this being the United States of America in the year 2020, things were not so simple as that. These negotiations were taking place in the backdrop of the largest sustained protest movement against police brutality that I have seen in my lifetime. Players were spotted all over the country protesting the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, just as they had organized displays of protest after the death of Eric Garner, for example. To make matters even more complicated, Florida was in the midst of a spike in COVID cases, which means that the following was about to happen. A group of billionaire owners, most of them white, were going to send the players, most of them black, into a group of Disney-owned hotels and gyms staffed by people living in an area particularly at risk during a pandemic away from their families for three months while the rest of the country was flooded with protests against the extrajudicial murder of black Americans, all to fulfill TV contracts including to channels like ABC and ESPN that are also owned by Disney so that these billionaire owners could make disproportionately more money than either the players or the staff working there. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Uh, many players said as much. Well-intentioned weirdo Kyrie Irving convened a massive video conference with other players to float the possibility of refusing to play and instead forming their own league. Other players like Avery Bradley and Davis Bertans excused themselves from contention for health concerns ahead of new contracts, and many more expressed a desire to remain involved in the protest movement, even in the bubble. With public scrutiny at an all-time high, 
and sentiment likely to side with the players in the event of a labor dispute, the league conceded to a public image that could coexist with the aesthetics of the Black Lives Matter movement. Those very words, Black Lives Matter, would be placed dead center on the court during all games. Players would be allowed to choose from a selection of pre-approved phrases to appear on the back of their jerseys and would face no repercussions for protesting during the national anthem, a la Colin Kaepernick. On the material front, the league owners pledged to donate $300 million over the next decade to black communities across the country. Exactly how impressive you find that $300 million figure will depend on your familiarity with those owners. So let's spend a minute talking about them. First and foremost, they are all outrageously wealthy. No matter how overpaid you think an NBA player is, most are nowhere close to the wealth accumulated by the league's 30 owners. Some notable names. James Dolan, owner of Madison Square Garden and amateur blues singer. Steve Ballmer, formerly of Microsoft, big fan of developers, developers, developers. Dan Gilbert, who types in Comic Sans and owns Quicken Loans. Josh Harris of Apollo Global Management. Tillman Fertitta, whose food conglomerate Landry's would also be selling food in the bubble. Mark Cuban, reality TV star and loudmouth tech guy. Dan DeVos, yes, that kind of DeVos, who owns the Orlando Magic, the closest thing to a home team in the bubble. As you can imagine, not exactly the most progressive bunch. <laughs> According to reporting by The Ringer, who I must, of course, mention are owned by Spotify, NBA owners have donated $14.9 million to Republican campaigns over the last five years, while only donating $5 million to Democrats over the same period of time, not counting the nearly $7 million that the Balmer family donated to gun violence advocacy. Uh, Balmer is so rich that he throws all of these scales out of whack. This naturally puts the owners at odds against the more progressive advocates for prison reform, racial equality, and voter enfranchisement among the players. It should be no surprise, then, that the compromise reached for the bubble had little in the way of material changes, either for the league itself, where coaching and front office staff remains majority white, or for the communities that the players sought to represent. While seeing the phrase Black Lives Matter on the court of one of America's most popular sports would have been unthinkable in the immediate wake of the Ferguson protests, it represented little more than a weather vane for the state of public relations in 2020. Interspersing clips of players chanting arm-in-arm arm with protesters during commercial breaks may have helped soften the image of the movement to the average American spooked by the prospect of looting and riots, but in doing so, removed any reference to the calls for the abolishment of the police. Regardless of the hollow progressive aesthetics, it is still a league where black men and a large number of men from the Balkans, which is just a whole other can of worms, sacrifice their bodies in the employ of white billionaires for entertainment filtered through a largely white media class. The league's attempts to paper over this reality, 
by showing footage of the players goofing off in Disney World or talking to their children on FaceTime, only highlighted the absurdity of the spectacle by putting the corporate synergy and domestic upheaval the bubble required front and center. And yet, after a stirring speech by rapper and prison reform advocate Meek Mill, the games resumed and were without question dope as hell. With the worst teams in the league absent, including my beloved Chicago Bulls, the quality of play exceeded even the most optimistic expectations. Despite, or maybe as a result of the long break in play, younger stars returned with vastly improved skills. TJ Warren, Jamal Murray, Devin Booker, uh, Michael Porter Jr., and John Morant all looked like new players, and through their improvement, bucked conventional wisdom about which teams would emerge victorious. The layoff also helped players like Yusuf, the Bosnian beast Nurkic, recover from injuries. Nurkic's return in particular, along with the consistently spectacular play of Damian Lillard, pushed the Portland Trailblazers from the bottom of the standings into real playoff contention. Games ran throughout the day, perfect for the doldrums of working from home in the summer. The constant flood of new results also invigorated the already robust content ecosystem that has sprung up on the NBA's side. The blogs, podcasts, meme accounts, video analysts, Twitter pundits, aggregator pieces like this very podcast, all soaking up vast quantities of attention. Each of these takes the core of basketball, the individual players performing against each other with all of the creativity, skill, and effort that this requires, and refracts it. Plays lose their context in short clips. Arbitrary facial expressions on the sidelines are repurposed for personal expression by fans. Counting statistics form the basis of incomplete comparison weighted to serve biases of allegiance or cultural values. Real reporting and off-court rumor-mongering co-mingle. Famously, Lou Williams missed games after being spotted eating at a strip club in Atlanta while on leave from the bubble for a personal matter. And both form the basis of a meta-narrative that hovers over the games. It is this narrative that the league sells to the world, and none of it would exist without the players. The players made this clear. After Jacob Blake was murdered in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the Milwaukee Bucks refused to play against the Orlando Magic, sparking a wildcat strike that rippled out from the NBA to the WNBA, MLB, NHL, and the U.S. Tennis Association. There followed two days of meetings, which were resolved after Barack Obama, of all people, called and urged the players to resume play. The league, having staked their public goodwill on their perceived social awareness, made a conciliatory gesture by opening up its empty arenas to become polling sites. You may have some recency bias in regards to that last bit, but at the time it felt like the bare minimum. The brief hold that the players had on the situation appeared to be given away for much less than it was worth. Things returned to normal. The play remained great. The strike was an aberration in the narrative, but not a rupture. Time would move beyond it, replacing it with the unexpected success of the Miami Heat and the extremely expected success of LeBron James's Lakers upon reaching the finals. And the, despite the heroic efforts of a mustache-twirling Jimmy Butler, 
The Lakers prevailed. Cue the confetti. Order is restored out of chaos. A happy ending. But like Audrey Horn having her song called at the Twin Peaks Roadhouse, something was off. I haven't talked much about what these games looked like, in part because my brain watched enough of the bubble to have its peculiarities fade into the background. But trust me, it was deeply fucking weird. Fans were replaced with what essentially amounted to Zoom screens, where their inflated and pixelated faces reacted out of sync with the action on the courts. Uh, the court itself was also strangely lifeless, no longer adorned with the often goofy logos of NBA teams or the various local colors that parade across the floor during breaks in the game. To make up for the eerie silence in this absence, DJs pumped music into the gyms and broadcasters piped in fake crowd noise. Like the virtual fans, these pre-recorded crowd reactions never quite seemed to match the action on the court. Instead, both evoked the idea of a basketball game without ever feeling like one. Normally, this would be the paragraph where I switch to describing the positives of the bubble aesthetics, and I will do that, but the tricky thing is that the stuff that I like gives me even worse vibes than the stuff that I don't. Despite the bubble courts being bland and lifeless, they also cut a great deal of the grotesque pageantry uh, that distracts from the brilliance of the game itself. No more, you know, glowing PNs to the U.S. military, no more t-shirt guns, no more celebrities and ultra-rich goobers lining the court. This isn't just some culture war bias either. The change in venue had a positive impact on the play itself. Without camera operators and photographers crowding the space behind each basket, players were free to drive to the basket at full speed with no fear of crashing into a pile of metal and flesh. No travel and no home crowds also meant that the games were played on about as equal footing as is possible. There was even speculation that the smaller gyms resulted in uh, better shooting for lack of distraction. So why would I find any of this disconcerting? Surely I wasn't clamoring for cheerleaders to storm the court and smile like they were at gunpoint while some bozo screamed at the top of his lungs about a local car dealership. Shouldn't I, a purported lover of the game, celebrate this undiluted and pure version of NBA basketball? Ah, but that word, pure, always sets alarms off in my brain. What is pure NBA basketball? And what is removed for the sake of it? I can't help but worry that purity in this context just means data with less noise. An NBA where every game is played under the same conditions, no distractions, no human messiness to interfere with the accumulation of stats and play itself. This is the analytics wet dream come true. A sterilized and streamlined version of basketball where only the elements that truly impact outcomes enter into the game. This version of the game is closer to the mathematical idea of basketball, mana to the NBA's increasingly technocratic front offices. I 
dread what could come of this vision of basketball. A league that constricts players into the most logically correct shots and holds their contracts at stake in the process. One that reduces players to their statistical outputs measured against financial burdens. Abstractions measured by utility. I do not want an NBA that asks players to be data first and humans second. To give people some kind of understanding of life, I try and deliver some type of message or story through my music. Meek Mill began his speech before the first games in the bubble. If this is the thesis of NBA The Return, what story was told here? The Phoenix Suns valiantly going 8-0 despite having no shot of making the playoffs? The Portland Trailblazers gritting their way into the eighth seed only to get demolished by the superstar Lakers? The Miami Heat overcoming the prohibitive favorites through ingenuity and execution? The Denver Nuggets never losing hope and trusting in their play to eventually come around until it didn't. The Los Angeles Lakers, with all of the baggage of Kobe Bryant's recent death hanging over them, dominating despite front office ineptitude because LeBron James chose them, and thus reorienting the competitive balance of the entire league. The Milwaukee Bucks, disappointing on the court. It's too easy to crack their scheme when they never change it but a beacon of what could be done off of it. Even if their strike did not last long enough, did not, in a single stroke, enact the change they wanted to see, it demonstrated that a player strike was possible to begin with. Not a silver bullet, but a warning shot. All of these stories exist concurrently. It is up to the viewer to make sense of them and determine which ones matter and which ones don't. The owners of the league and the channels cannot do this for you. The ball is in your court. The Who Will Entertain in America series will conclude with a return to the subject of music, this time to a band that straddles the line between the present and the past. Are they an echo or something new? Next up, Code Orange. No matter how much time passes, my mind defaults to mid-March. It's like I've missed a save point somewhere along the way, so that the terminus of my train of thought opens back up to the last moment before the disc started skipping. Like Neo running fruitlessly through the tunnel only to remain in limbo. I am stuck at the tipping point between the previous order and future instability. No use despairing. Let's put those old gamer instincts to work and see if we can find a way out through a different path. Last time we tried our luck with the NBA bubble, the makeshift basketball simulacrum built after the NBA season was canceled on March 12th, 2020. The following day, the first of two Friday the 13th in 2020, Code Orange released Underneath their fourth album and second for Roadrunner Records. 
in a pandemicless 2020, this record was to be the consecration of Code Orange's place in heavy music's big leagues. First, a hometown release show in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, then a tour of the United States, appearances at WWE events all but guaranteed, spots locked in for end-of-the-year lists in print and digital press alike. Instead, facing the sudden shutdown of the live music industry along with much of the rest of public life, Code Orange pivoted and performed that release show to an audience of cameras. Now, having passed the second Friday, the 13th of the year, much of the Code Orange coronation has continued as planned. In June, the band performed the title track of Underneath at NXT, and in November, the same song would be nominated for a Grammy, the band's second nomination in as many album cycles. At the time of writing, early returns are good for the record's place on end-of-the-year lists, a predictably negative review and pitchfork aside. Code Orange emerged from 2020 roughly as victorious as they could have hoped. Not yet the biggest name in either hardcore punk or heavy metal, but the youngest band to feasibly be part of the conversation, the clear holders of the torch for heavy music for the next generation. Have they conquered the world? Or have we just entered their world? as Code Orange memorably predicted back in 2013. Did they reach this peak through sheer force of will or inertia? I don't ask these questions out of disrespect for the band. Underneath is locked into my own end-of-the-year list, but because their seeming inevitability leaves too much unsaid. What about this band has brought them here? beloved both by a huge audience and a media class typically skeptical of bands that build such a big tent following. Why Code Orange? And why now? Before they were Code Orange, they were Code Orange Kids, a scrappy but undeniably talented hardcore band. Since 2011, their lineup has revolved around drummer Jamie Morgan, guitarists Reba Myers and Eric Balderose, and bassist Joe Goldman. The first three all share vocal duties, although early on you'd be forgiven for not noticing. At this point, it wasn't clear whether Code Orange kids could actually write songs or just sprint through them at top speed. Structure, repetition, and hooks all took a backseat to momentum and raw aggression. This can take you pretty far in hardcore, especially if you tailor your live show towards getting the crowd moving. After a few splits and EPs, the group released Love is Love slash Return to Dust on Deathwish Incorporated. Recording with Kurt Ballou and getting a Deathwish Inc. cosign would be a big deal for any hardcore band, let alone a bunch of gangly teens that were running on more gumption than skill. The record was well enough received, but didn't separate them from a field of other well-received hardcore records. Still, they were a known entity. Having emerged from Converge's finishing school for malcontent youths, Code Orange got serious. For their second album, I Am King, the band dropped the kids from their name and added a chip to their shoulder. 
their songwriting shifted to a slower, groovier, and more menacing style of hardcore. In doing so, they turned their previously chaotic approach into a strength. By integrating electronics and Ableton Live, they approximated a post-human style that could jump from sound to silence and back instantly. The effect was something close to a 90s beatdown act cut up for the pace of social media. Around the time of that record, 2014-15, I saw Code Orange live at Subterranean in Chicago, as packed as I'd ever seen it. It was the first time I'd noticed hardcore kids wearing Cam FDM shirts and Sepultura long sleeves, part of a growing shift towards the sound and fashion of 90s alt metal and industrial. Code Orange tore the place apart. The next time I saw them, they were opening for the Dillinger Escape Plan in Terminal 5 as part of Dillinger's farewell run. By then, Code Orange had signed to Roadrunner Records, released their third album forever, and had, as Jamie Morgan put it while counting off a song, taken their sound from the basement to the Grammys. Their songs were starting to zoom out, become broader and blunter. The scrawny punks from Pittsburgh hit their first red carpet looking like villains from Batman Beyond. Why, of all the bands that released well-received but unremarkable records in 2012, did Code Orange end up here? There are musical explanations, yes, the beats of which are probably familiar to anyone now or formally concerned with the cost of selling out. There are also factors that could charitably be called world-building and cynically dubbed marketing. The two are related. In addition to the linear, breakdown-oriented material, Code Orange started including straight-ahead verse-chorus tunes. Not only were these more accessible for all the usual reasons, they also let the band's multi-singer potential flourish. Now a shouty Morgan song could sit comfortably next to alt-rock tracks with Myers singing lead. Not only did this make their material catchier on the whole, it also injected them with a much-needed dose of personality. Matching their audience's sudden interest in 90s metal fashion, Code Orange's melodic material gets compared to grungish hard rock, industrial metal, and new metal, essentially a composite of the most distinctly 90s to early aughts trends in American heavy music. They're quite good at it, in the opinion of a 30-year-old with formative memories set to burnt corn CDs. There's a fine line where this kind of stuff can be a bit too sweet in the hooks. Done right, even the prettiest parts should sound a bit ungainly. Parallel harmonies, lots of chromatic movement, maybe the vocals aren't exactly nailed to the pitch, that sort of thing. Conversely, the uglier chunks should have some musicality to their arrangement a sense of push and pull, good timing, all in the interest of getting the body moving. Underneath does both. Code Orange began carrying themselves like they had something to prove, writing songs that lashed out against critics and lesser artists. This tough guy turn was accompanied by a series of mantras or slogans that have stuck to the band's merchandising ever since, thinners of the herd being the most prominent. 
uh, by the next record, they were dropping their own name into songs. Code Orange Forever. This sort of stuff can really rub people the wrong way in heavy music. It can seem pompous or self-important or egotistical. For whatever reason, this kind of talk seems to really bother other musicians who have trained themselves to keep their egotism and shit talk backstage and are suspicious of anyone behaving like a rock star without having earned it first. I've heard some unsubstantiated stories from other musicians of the Code Orange folks being dicks at shows. And during an off-the-record conversation with the uh, drummer of a highly regarded band from the same generation, uh, I heard, fuck that band, in a way that suggested dislike for more than just their music. What musicians tend to overlook is that this kind of chest beating actually goes over really well with audiences when the tunes can back it up. In Code Orange's case, the multi-singer lineup really helps sell it too. It's one thing to hear a single guy bellow, I am king, but when three people trade the line off and bellow it together, it can start to sound a lot like we are king. And if that's the case, then hell, maybe you are king too. Everything about Code Orange's branding is telling you that it's their band against the world but that you can join the club anytime. That is, of course, if you're a bad enough dude to handle it. If you feel as much pent-up resentment and disgust at the world as Code Orange, then maybe you too can be a thinner of the herd. It helps that Code Orange are from Pittsburgh, not exactly a small town, but certainly far enough afield from the centers of culture to give their outsider status some verisimilitude. It's the same logic that led to KISS building their KISS army by touring through otherwise ignored stretches of the country. The same impulse that led Insane Clown Posse and Slipknot to refashion their fans as juggalos and maggots, respectively. There are a great many people in this world who don't feel like a them, but haven't been included into an us yet either. No matter how corny or careerist you may find it, a band that can provide someone with an us to belong to is headed for good things. Worth noting that Roadrunner Records have some experience turning this kind of band into a global phenomenon since they have been the only label to release Slipknot albums. Corey Taylor himself gave a tacit cosign by showing up on a Code Orange EP in 2018. So come March 2020, fuck, see, we're at the start of the loop again. Here was a hardcore band that had grinded their way to the edge of the mainstream and were following an ironclad blueprint set by a band that has dominated metal media for decades. Suddenly, their hellish victory lap vanishes before their eyes. If ever there were a chance for them to back up their claim that Code Orange is forever, here it was. I am pleased to report that they delivered on the promise. Code Orange have played three live stream concerts, each with a unique twist. First was Last Ones Left in the Fear of the End, which restaged their release show for a digital audience, mixing in their background projections into a fairly standard live performance, albeit one by a band ready to crack skulls across the country. They followed this up with Under the Skin, 
no relation to one of the best movies of the last decade, but I wouldn't be surprised if the band were into the Michael Levy score. A stripped-down acoustic set reminiscent of MTV's Unplugged concert series. A comparison they made explicit by covering Alice in Chains' Down in a Hole. Finally, on Halloween, they launched Back Inside the Glass, which turned their headlining tour into Generation Z's Rock and Roll Circus. Preceding their performance were sets by the intended openers for their U.S. tour. Machine Girl, a project that deserves its own lengthy celebration at some point, tore through a set in what looked like an abandoned high school, including an appropriately sardonic cover of Faith No More's We Care A Lot. Year of the Knife and Jesus Peace played fairly conventional hardcore sets to an empty room, the quality of which will depend largely on how you feel about those bands. Year of the Knife? Sure, why not? Jesus Peace? Hell fucking yeah. For their own performance, Code Orange made every use of their new medium to provide something more than just a glorified band practice. They performed on a multi-level stage where every visible inch had been mapped for projections. The effect was that the band were moving through a version of the same web that you were using to watch them. An effect heightened by the footage of fans furiously banging their heads and pre-recorded videos that occasionally passed through the margins of the projections. Supplementing the wide shots were close-ups handled by Sonny Singh, cameraman behind the popular live video channel Hate56, as well as picture-in-picture frames that disrupted the supposed reality of the experience. This would have been a terrific presentation for any modern rock band, but it couldn't have made a better fit for Code Orange's increasing interest in retro-cyber-futurist aesthetics. I know that's a lot, but let me unpack that for a bit. Underneath is an album primarily about the way that modern digital life refracts and warps human interaction. As you'd expect from a band now firmly entrenched in the belly of the music industry, the examples they draw to represent this disconnect come mostly from the media sphere, like the parasocial stalker of who I am or the pressures of celebrity and Ottoman Carbine. Code Orange back up this lyrical focus on the digital life with music that has a renewed emphasis on electronic sounds. Not only did they use Ableton to cut up their music into stuttering glitches, they worked with former Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson drummer Chris Vrenna to incorporate a range of synthesizers and drum machines on underneath. This mix of electronics, both new and old, into heavy music puts the album into two spots in time simultaneously. It is a modern record, the product of a young band using all of the available technology to talk about the world they live in. It is also an album that sounds like the best of the turn of the century, polished to fit today's market. Black trench coats, dyed hair, bounce riffs, drum machines, songs from the perspective of stalkers, welcome to my twisted mind, fonts equal parts, the Matrix and Blade Runner, etc., etc. The future, Code Orange, describe already happened. I don't think it's unrelated that the further Code Orange push into this aesthetic territory, 
the more critics praise their work. Enough time has passed that the former new metal kids raving under the overpass are now riding Ubers to their office on top of it. They see a band recreating the sounds of their youth, building an audience of the current youth, and they egg them on. That would be the case regardless of the style of music in question. But the specific historical circumstances of this subgenre add another layer of nostalgic glow. Code Orange's mix of industrial and new metal recalls the last moment when heavy metal was a viable pop music, and thus when a future for the genre outside of insular subculture was possible. By God, is that the Pinchonian subjectus music? It is unbelievable. Oh, it's going for garage rock revival with a steel chair. <laughs> New metal singers shared the stage with pop singers and blockbuster action films like Underworld and Triple X stocked their soundtracks to the brim with dreadlocked lords of drop B. Code Orange reviving the look, sound, and extrasensory vibe of this point in time and making legit great work out of it feels like the reopening of a sealed-off horizon. Back in 2016, I interviewed Jacob Bannon of Converge and Deathwish Inc. about a pair of special sets that the band had planned for Roadburn Festival in Tilburg. After the bulk of the interview was finished, I slipped in a few questions that had been nagging me as a Converge fan. The last few times I had seen them, Bannon had repeated an idea between songs about the band's purpose. Essentially, he saw it as Converge's job at this point in their career to inspire the next Converge. I wanted to know which younger bands, in Bannon's estimation, best fit that description. Code Orange and Full of Hell, he told me. At the time, I found the answer a bit disappointing, uh, so I moved on to even nerdier questions about why No Heroes wasn't more popular. I, I didn't fit this into the original piece because it really is off topic, but since you're already this far in, I'll just tell you. His answer was that it was just way too out of sync with what was popular in hardcore at the time. I think that's like sort of true, but it's a really good album, whatever. I don't know if he could have given me a satisfying answer back then. There was something coursing underneath that bit of stage banter that I found upsetting. Is that all there is to being in a band? You aspire another iteration of yourself who inspires another iteration on and on throughout time? To use Code Orange's language, imitation of imitation, or to use Nine Inch Nails's, a copy of a copy, just an endless cycle that tumbles forward but always ends up in the same place. I don't feel that way anymore. Yes, Code Orange owe a debt to the music of the 90s and early 2000s, which in turn could not exist without the cyberpunk aesthetics of the 80s, and so on and so on further back in time. You cannot escape the footprint of influences, but you can take the next step forward. 
Since Code Orange's three live streams, two clear forebearers and Slipknot and Greg Pusciato, formerly of the Dillinger Escape Plan, have announced their own live stream productions. Code Orange are now a step ahead of the artists whose wake they once drifted in. If they are an iteration, then they are the iteration that we have now. The cycle is in good hands. Run on, Neo. Run on. Thank you for listening. More episodes soon.